Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? Today, What's the secret? Chapter 12 The particular impression I had received proved in the morning light, I repeat, not quite successfully presentable to Mrs. Gross, though I reinforced it with the mention of still another remark that he had made before we separated. It all lies in half a dozen words, I said to her, words that really settle the matter. Think, you know, what I might do. He threw that off to show me how good he is. He knows, down to the ground, what he might do. That's what he gave them a taste of at school. Lord, you do change, cried my friend. I don't change, I simply make it out. The four depend upon it, perpetually meet. If on either of these last nights you had been with either child, you would have clearly understood. The more I've watched and waited, the more I've felt that if there were nothing else to make it sure, it would be made so by the systematic silence of each. Never, by a slip of the tongue, have they so much as alluded to either of their old friends, any more than Miles has alluded to his expulsion. Oh yes, we may sit here and look at them, and they may show off to us there to their fill, but even while they pretend to be lost in their fairy tale, they're steeped in their vision of the dead restored. He's not reading to her, I declared. They're talking of them. They're talking horrors. I go on. I know as if I were crazy, and it's a wonder I'm not. What I've seen would have made you so, but it has only made me more lucid, made me get hold of still other things. My lucidity must have seemed awful, but the charming creatures who were victims of it, passing and repassing in their interlocked sweetness, gave my colleague something to hold on by. And I felt how tight she held, as without stirring in the breath of my passion, she covered them still with her eyes. Of what other things have you got hold? Why, of the very things that have delighted, fascinated, and yet at bottom, as I now so strangely see, mystified and troubled me? They're more than earthly beauty. They're absolutely unnatural goodness. It's a game, I went on. It's a policy and a fraud. On the part of little darlings, as yet mere lovely babies. Yes, mad as that seems. The very act of bringing it out really helped me to trace it, follow it all up and piece it all together. They haven't been good. They've only been absent. It has been easy to live with them because they're simply leading a life of their own. They're not mine. They're not ours. They're his. And they're hers. Quince and that woman's. Quince and that woman's. They want to get rid of them. Oh, how at this poor Mrs. Gross appeared to study them. But for what? For the love of all the evil that in those dreadful days the pair put them into, and to ply them with that evil still, to keep up the work of demons is what brings the others back. Laws, said my friend under her breath. The exclamation was homely, but it revealed a real acceptance of my further proof of what, in the bad time, for there had been a worse even than this, must have occurred. There could have been no such justification for me as the plain ascent of her experience to whatever depth of depravity I found credible in our brace of scoundrels. It was in obvious submission of memory that she brought out after a moment. They were rascals, but what can they do now? she pursued. Do? 
I echoed so loud that Miles and Flora, as they passed at their distance, paused an instant in their walk and looked at us. Don't they do enough? I demanded in a lower tone, while the children, having smiled and nodded and kissed hands to us, resumed their exhibition. We were held by it a minute. Then I answered, They can destroy them. At this my companion did turn, but the inquiry she launched was a silent one, the effect of which was to make me more explicit. They don't know as yet quite how, but they're trying hard. They're seen only across, as it were, and beyond, in strange places, and on high places, the tops of towers, the roofs of houses, the outside of windows, the further edge of pools, but there's a deep design, on either side, to shorten the distance and overcome the obstacle. And the success of the tempters is only a question of time. They've only to keep to their suggestions of danger for the children to come and perish in the attempt. Mrs. Gross slowly got up, and I scrupulously added, unless, of course, we can prevent. Standing there before me while I kept my seat, she visibly turned things over. Their uncle must do the preventing, he must take them away. And who's to make him? She had been scanning the distance, but she now dropped on me a foolish face. You, miss, by writing to him that his house is poisoned and his little nephew and niece mad. But if they are, miss, and if I am myself, you mean, that's charming news to be sent him by a governess whose prime undertaking was to give him no worry. Mrs. Gross considered, following the children again, yes, sir, he do hate worry. That was the great reason. Why those fiends took him in so long, no doubt, though his indifference must have been awful. As I'm not a fiend at any rate, I shouldn't take him in. My companion, after an instant, and for all answer, sat down again and grasped my arm. Make him at any rate come to you. I stared. To me? I had a sudden fear of what she might do. Him? He ought to be here. He ought to help. I quickly rose, and I think I must have shown her a queerer face than ever yet. You see me asking him for a visit? No. With her eyes on my face, she evidently couldn't. Instead of it even... As a woman reads another, she could see what I myself saw, his derision, his amusement, his contempt for the breakdown of my resignation at being left alone, and for the fine machinery I had set in motion to attract his attention to my slighted charms. She didn't know, no one knew, how proud I had been to serve him and to stick to our terms. Yet, she nonetheless took the measure, I think, of the warning I now gave her. If you should so lose your head as to appeal to him for me. She was really frightened. Yes, miss. I would leave, on the spot, both him and you. Chapter 13 It was all very well to join them, but speaking to them proved quite as much as ever an effort beyond my strength, offered in close quarters difficulties as insurmountable as before. This situation continued a month and with new aggravations and particular notes, the note above all sharper and sharper of the small ironic consciousness on the part of my pupils. It was not, I am as sure today as I was sure then, my mere infernal imagination. It was absolutely traceable that they were aware of my predicament, and that this strange relation made, in a manner, for a long time, the air in which we moved. 
I don't mean that they had their tongues in their cheeks or did anything vulgar, for that was not one of their dangers. I do mean, on the other hand, that the element of the unnamed and untouched became, between us, greater than any other, and that so much avoidance could not have been so successfully effected without a great deal of tacit arrangement. It was as if, at moments, we were perpetually coming into sight of subjects before which we must stop short, turning suddenly out of alleys that we perceived to be blind, closing with a little bang that made us look at each other, for like all bangs it was something louder than we had intended, the doors we had indiscreetly opened. All roads lead to Rome, and there were times when it might have struck us that almost every branch of study or subject of conversation skirted forbidden ground. Forbidden ground was the question of the return of the dead in general, and of whatever in especial might survive in memory of the friends little children had lost. There were days when I could have sworn that one of them had, with a small invisible nudge, said to the other, She thinks she'll do it this time, but she won't. To do it would have been to indulge, for instance, and for once in a way, in some direct reference to the lady who had prepared them for my discipline. They had a delightful, endless appetite for passages in my own history, to which I had again and again treated them. They were in possession of everything that had ever happened to me, had had, with every circumstance, the story of my smallest adventures, and of those of my brothers and sisters, and of the cat and the dog at home, as well as many particulars of the eccentric nature of my father, of the furniture and arrangement of our house, and of the conversation of the old women of our village. There were things enough, taking one with another, to chatter about, if one went very fast and knew by instinct when to go round. They pulled with an art of their own the strings of my invention and my memory, and nothing else, perhaps, when I thought of such occasions afterward, gave me so the suspicion of being watched from under cover. It was, in any case, over my life, my past, and my friends alone that we could take anything like our ease, a state of affairs that led them sometimes without the least pertinence to break out into sociable reminders. I was invited, with no visible connection, to repeat afresh Goody Gosling's celebrated mo, or to confirm the details already supplied as to the cleverness of the vicarage pony. It was partly at such junctures as these, and partly at quite different ones, that with the turn of my matters had now taken, my predicament, as I have called it, grew most sensible. The fact that the days passed for me without another encounter ought, it would have appeared, to have done something towards soothing my nerves. Since the light brush that second night on the upper landing of the presence of a woman at the foot of the stair, I had seen nothing, whether in or out of the house, that one had better not have seen. There was many a corner round which I expected to come upon Quint, and many a situation that in a merely sinister way would have favoured the appearance of Miss Jessel. The summer had turned, the summer had gone, the autumn had dropped upon Bly and had blown out half our lights, the place with its grey sky and withered garlands, its bared spaces and scattered dead leaves, was like a theatre after the performance all strewn with crumpled playbills. There were exactly states of the air, conditions of sound and of stillness, 
unspeakable impressions of the kind of ministering moment that brought back to me, long enough to catch it, the feeling of the medium in which that June evening out of doors I had had my first sight of Quint, and in which too, at those other instants, I had, after seeing him through the window, looked for him in vain in the circle of the shrubbery. I recognised the signs, the portents, I recognised the moment, the spot, but they remained unaccompanied and empty, and I continued unmolested, if unmolested one could call a young woman whose sensibility had, in the most extraordinary fashion, not declined, but deepened. I had said in my talk with Mrs. Gross and that horrid scene of floors by the lake, and had perplexed her so by saying, that it would from that moment distress me much more to lose my power than to keep it. I had then expressed what was vividly in my mind, the truth that, whether the children really saw or not, since, that is, it was not yet definitely proved, I greatly preferred as a safeguard the fullness of my own exposure. I was ready to know the very worst that was to be known. What I had then had an ugly glimpse of was that my eyes might be sealed just while theirs were most opened. Well, my eyes were sealed, it appeared, at present, a consummation for which it seemed blasphemous not to thank God. There was, alas, a difficulty about that. I would have thanked him with all my soul had I not had in the proportionate measure this conviction of the secret of my pupils. How can I retrace today the strange steps of my obsession? There were times of our being together when I would have been ready to swear that literally in my presence, but without my direct sense of it closed, they had visitors who were known and were welcome. Then it was that had I not been deterred by the very chance that such an injury might prove greater than the injury to be averted, my exultation would have broken out. They're here, they're here, you little wretches, I would have cried, and you can't deny it now. The little wretches denied it with all the added volume of their sociability and their tenderness in just the crystal depths of which, like the flash of a fish in a stream, the mockery of their advantage peeped up. The shock, in truth, had sunk into me deeper than I knew on the night when, looking out to see either Quint or Miss Jessel under the stars, I had beheld the boy over whose rest I watched and who had immediately brought in with him had straight away there turned it on me, the lovely upward look with which, from the battlements above me, the hideous apparition of Quint had played. If it was a question of scare, my discovery on this occasion had scared me more than any other, and it was in the condition of nerves produced by it that I made my actual inductions. They harassed me so that at some times, at odd moments, I shut myself up audibly to rehearse. It was at once a fantastic relief and a renewed despair, the manner in which I might come to the point. I approached it from one side and the other while, in my room, I flung myself about. But I always broke down in the monstrous utterance of names. As they died away on my lips, I said to myself that I should indeed help them to represent something infamous if by pronouncing them I should violate as rare a little case of instinctive delicacy as any schoolroom probably had ever known. When I said to myself, they have the manners to be silent, and you, trusted as you are, 
the baseness to speak. I felt myself crimson, and I covered my face with my hands. After these secret scenes, I chatted more than ever, going on volubly enough until one of our prodigious palpable hushes occurred. I can call them nothing else. The strange, dizzy lift or swim I try for terms into a stillness, a pause of all life, that had nothing to do with the more or less noise that at the moment we might be engaged in making, and that I could hear through any deepened exhilaration or quickened recitation or louder strum of the piano. Then it was that the others, the outsiders, were there. Though they were not angels, they passed, as the French say, causing me, while they stayed, to tremble with the fear of their addressing to their younger victims some yet more infernal message or more vivid image than they had thought good enough for myself. What it was the most impossible to get rid of was the cruel idea that whatever I had seen, Miles and Flora saw more, things terrible and unguessable, and that sprang from dreadful passages of intercourse in the past. Such things naturally left on the surface for the time a chill which we vociferously denied that we felt, and we had, all three, with repetition, got into such splendid training that we went each time, almost automatically, to mark the close of the incident, through the very same movements. It was striking of the children at all events to kiss me inveterately with a kind of wild irrelevance and never to fail, one or the other, of the precious question that had helped us through many a peril. When do you think he will come? Don't you think we ought to write? There was nothing like that inquiry. We found by experience for carrying off an awkwardness. He, of course, was their uncle in Harley Street, and we lived in much profusion of theory that he might at any moment arrive to mingle in our circle. It was impossible to have given less encouragement than he had done to such a doctrine, but if we had not had the doctrine to fall back upon, we should have deprived each other of some of our finest exhibitions. He never wrote to them. That may have been selfish, but it was part of the flattery of his trust of me, for the way in which a man pays his highest tribute to a woman is apt to be but by the more festal celebration of one of the sacred laws of his comfort. And I held that I carried out the spirit of the pledge given not to appeal to him when I let my charges understand that their own letters were but charming literary exercises. They were too beautiful to be posted. I kept them myself. I have them all to this hour. There was a rule indeed which only added to the satiric effect of my being plied with the supposition that he might at any moment be among us. It was exactly as if my charges knew how almost more awkward than anything else that might be for me. There appears to me, moreover, as I look back, no note in all of this more extraordinary than the mere fact that in spite of my tension and of their triumph, I never lost patience with them. Adorable they must in truth have been, and now I reflect that I didn't in those days hate them. Would exasperation, however, if relief had longer been postponed, finally have betrayed me? It little matters, for relief arrived. I call it relief, though it was only the relief that a snap brings to a strain, or the burst of a thunderstorm to a day of suffocation. It was at least change, and it came with a rush. Chapter 14 
walking to church a certain Sunday morning, I had little Miles at my side, and his sister in advance of us, and at Mrs. Gross's well in sight. It was a crisp, clear day, the first of its order for some time. The night had brought a touch of frost, and the autumn air, bright and sharp, made the church bells almost gay. It was an odd accident of thought that I should have happened at such a moment to be particularly and very gratefully struck with the obedience of my little charges. Why did they never resent my inexorable, my perpetual society? Something or other had brought nearer home to me that I had all but pinned the boy to my shawl, and that, in the way our companions were marshalled before me, I might have appeared to provide against some danger of rebellion. I was like a jailer with an eye to possible surprises and escapes. But all this belonged, I mean their magnificent little surrender, just to the special array of the facts that were the most abysmal. Turned out for Sunday by his uncle's tailor, who had had a free hand and a notion of pretty waistcoats and of his grand little heir, Miles's whole title to independence, the rights of his sex and situation, were so stamped upon him that if he had suddenly struck for freedom, I should have had nothing to say. I was, by the strangest of chances, wondering how I should meet him when the revolution unmistakably occurred. I call it a revolution, because I now see how, with the word he spoke, the curtain rose on the last act of my dreadful drama, and the catastrophe was precipitated. Look here, my dear, you know, he charmingly said, when in the world, please, am I going back to school? Transcribed here, the speech sounds harmless enough, particularly as uttered in his sweet, high, casual pipe, with which at all interlocutors, but above all at his eternal governess, he threw off intonations as if he were tossing roses. There was something in them that always made one catch, and I caught, at any rate, now so effectually that I stopped as short as if one of the trees of the park had fallen across the road. There was something new on the spot between us, and he was perfectly aware that I recognised it, though to enable me to do so, he had had no need to look a whit less candid and charming than usual. I could feel in him how he already, from my at first finding nothing to reply, perceived the advantage he had gained. I was so slow to find anything that he had plenty of time, after a minute, to continue with his suggestive but inconclusive smile. You know, my dear, that for a fellow to be with a lady always, his my dear was constantly on his lips for me. Nothing could have expressed more the exact shade of the sentiment with which I desired to inspire my pupils than its fond familiarity. It was so respectfully easy. But oh, how I felt that present I must pick my own phrases. I remember that to gain time I tried to laugh, and I seemed to see in the beautiful face with which he watched me how ugly and queer I looked. And always with the same lady, I returned. He neither blanched nor winked. The whole thing was virtually out between us. Ah, of course, she's a jolly perfect lady, but after all, I'm a fellow, don't you see? That's, well, getting on. I lingered there with him an instant, ever so kindly. Yes, you're getting on. Oh, but I felt helpless. I have kept to this day the heartbreaking little idea of how he seemed to know that and to play with it. And you can't say I've not been awfully good, can you? I laid my hand on his shoulder, for though I felt how much better it would have been to walk on, I was not quite able to. No, 
I can't say that, Miles. Except just that one night, you know. That one night, I couldn't look as straight as he. Why, when I went down, went out of the house. Oh, yes. But I forget what you did it for. You forget, he spoke with the sweet extravagance of childish reproach. Why, it was to show you I could. Oh, yes, you could. And I can again. I felt that I might, perhaps, after all, succeed in keeping my wits about me. Certainly, but you won't. No, not that again. It was nothing. It was nothing, I said. But we must go on. He resumed a walk with me, passing his hand into my arm. Then, when am I going back? I wore in turning it over my most responsible air. Were you very happy at school? He just considered. Oh, I'm happy enough anywhere. Well then, I quavered, if you're just as happy here. Ah, but that isn't everything. Of course, you know a lot. But you hint that you know almost as much, I risked as he paused. Not half I want to, Miles honestly professed. But it isn't so much that. What is it then? Well, I want to see more life. I see, I see. We had arrived within sight of the church, and of various persons, including several of the household of Bly, on their way to it, and clustered about the door to see us go in. I quickened our step. I wanted to get there before the question between us opened up much further. I reflected hungrily that for more than an hour we would have to be silent, and I thought with envy of the comparative dusk of the pew and of the almost spiritual help of the hassock on which I might bend my knees. I seemed literally to be running a race with some confusion to which he was about to reduce me, but I felt that he had got in first, when before we had even entered the churchyard he threw out, I want my own sort. It literally made me bound forward. There are not many of your own sort, Miles, I laughed. Unless perhaps dear little Flora, you really compare me to a baby girl. This found me singularly weak. Don't you then love our sweet Flora? If I didn't, and you too, if I didn't, he repeated as if retreating for a jump yet leaving his thoughts so unfinished that after we had come into the gate another stop which he imposed on me by the pressure of his arm had become inevitable. Mrs. Gross and Flora had passed into the church, the other worshippers had followed, and we were for the minute alone among the old thick graves. We had paused on the path from the gate by a low oblong table-like tomb. Yes, if you didn't, he looked while I waited the graves. Well, you know what. But he didn't move, and he presently produced something that made me drop straight down on the stone slab, as if suddenly to rest. Does my uncle think what you think? I markedly rested. How do you know what I think? Oh, well, of course I don't, for it strikes me you never tell me. But I mean, does he know? Know what, Miles? Why, the way I'm going on. I perceived quickly enough that I could make to this inquiry no answer that wouldn't involve something of a sacrifice of my employer. Yet it appeared to me that we were all, at Bly, sufficiently sacrificed to make that venial. I don't think your uncle much cares. Miles on this stood looking at me. Then don't you think he can be made to? In what way? Why, by his coming down. But who'll get him to come down? I will, the boy said, with extraordinary brightness and emphasis. He gave me another look, charged with that expression, 
and then marched off alone into the church. Chapter 15 The business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me the fullness of its meaning. By the time I had grasped the whole of which I had also embraced, for absence, the pretext that I was ashamed to offer my pupils and the rest of the congregation such an example of delay, what I said to myself above all was that Miles had got something out of me and that the proof of it, for him, would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was much afraid of and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable question of the grounds of his dismissal from school, for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was the solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on, but I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right was in the position to say to me, either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so natural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me, what prevented my going in. I walked around the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected, that I had already with him hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore, I could patch up nothing, and it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival, I wanted to get away from him. As I paused beneath the high east window and listened to the sounds of worship, I was taken with an impulse that might master me. I felt completely should I give it the least encouragement. I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again for a few preparations to the house which the attendance at church of so many of the servants would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away, if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours, at the end of which, I had the acute prevision, my little pupils would play at innocent wonder about my non-appearance in their train. What did you do, you naughty bad thing? Why in the world to worry us so, and take our thoughts off too, don't you know? Did you desert us at the very door? I couldn't meet such questions, nor, as they asked them, their false little lovely eyes. Yet it was also exactly what I should have to meet, that as the prospect grew sharp to me, I at last let myself go. I got so far as the immediate moment was concerned away. I came straight out of the churchyard, and thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness, both of the approaches and of the interior, in which I met no one, fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly, this way, 
I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable, however, and the question of a conveyance was the great one to settle. Tormented in the hall, with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where more than a month before, in the darkness of night, and just so bowed with evil things, I had seen the spectre of the most horrible of women. At this, I was able to straighten myself. I went the rest of the way up, I made in my bewilderment for the schoolroom, where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take. But I opened the door to find again, in a flash, my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back upon my resistance. Seated at my own table, in clear noonday light, I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken at the first blush for some housemaid who might have stayed at home to look after the place, and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation and of the schoolroom table and my pens, ink and paper, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands with evident weariness supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with an indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and detachment, and within a dozen feet of me stood there as my vile predecessor. Dishonoured and tragic, she was all before me, but even as I fixed and for memory secured it, the awful image passed away. Dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty, and her unnutterable woe, she had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as wild protest against it that actually addressing her, you terrible, miserable woman. I heard myself break into a sound that by the open door rang through the long passage and the empty house. She looked at me as if she heard me, but I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. Everybody dies, don't they? How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? My mother doesn't know that. She's got her internet fixed, so that's good. Um, that was the turn of the screw up to chapter 15. I think there's nine chapters left. I want to get it done by the end of November. So I am reading and editing and pushing it out. You can hear the little gruffness in my voice. In my job, I actually talk on the phone all day. Um, These days with lockdown, I don't see my patients face to face. I talk to them on the phone. So I just spend all the time talking. And uh, it's wearing my voice out. 
I have nothing much to say. In fact, I do have one thing to say. As I was listening to this and reading it and editing it, it struck me that if you think why Quint and Miss Jessel are evil in this story, let's examine why they are put forward as the very uh, personification of evil. Quint, his crime is he is a lower class man who um, has not accepted his station in life. That's it. I don't think he's done any murders or anything or theft. I mean, he wore his master's clothes, but that's he didn't actually steal them. I think the master allowed him to. But, you know, the crime is, in Victorian eyes, you should stay where you are born, certainly in England. Anyway, and then Miss Jessel's crime is that she perhaps fell in love and fell pregnant outside wedlock. So she is infamous and he is a hound, you know, and that seems a bit harsh. I don't know about James's views about these things, whether this is just literary or he actually thought it himself. I mean, he was. He did become a British subject and that kind of, um, I may be reading too much into it, suggests that he, you know, was born a free American and he chose to become a subject of the British crown. So does that suggest a, that kind of old, old-fashioned conservative view of wanting to be? That there is, um, who, who else? Uh, Russell Kirk is another American author, and Lovecraft as well. They hearken back this, you know, being under the crown. You know, think of George Washington, what he would have thought about that. His grandmother is buried in the town I work in, you know, just saying, in Whitehaven. So that's it. That's my only observation. I think his language is maybe getting easier. I'm maybe getting used to it. What he does is... He, he has a clause and then he has a clause within a clause. And so you're reading something and then you have to actually return to the main point after about three sub-clauses by which, by which you've had to intonate your voice differently. This is only of minor interest to you, I suppose. Absolutely a preoccupation of mine. Though the only other thing to say is if you sign up to my mailing list on Substack, and you can do it for free, Tony Walker, no dots, Tony Walker dot, there's a dot, but there's no dots in between the Tony and the Walker. TonyWalker.substack.com. And you can, it'll be in the show notes as well. But then you get these as they come out. That's the bonus. You don't have to wait every week. So I'm going to be pumping them out. The turn of the screw. The turns of the screw. It's a great title, actually. And he is good at the story. I mean, the story's good. The story's really good. Even I, and it takes a lot to creep me out. Even I was like, ooh, there's a kind of atmosphere in that house, isn't there? That he's done very, very well. Uh, so I hope you're not too scared. If you are, and you want a bit of light relief, go and watch Derry Girls. I've been watching it, and I've been doing my Northern Irish accent all night. Yeah, Derry Girls, an antidote to the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Actually, it's really very funny. So anyway, that's it. Um, I'm not going to talk because I need to save my voice. 